Good morning. Let me say a word for just a second about uh, this evening's services. Uh, you know, fusion is a big thing in our society. They do it with music and drinks and various things. So tonight is a fusion of two things that we do on a regular basis. Every month we have a question and answer uh, lesson. It's usually the second Sunday night of the month, but as busy as things have been, we have to shift that around. So that is this evening. We're going to be dealing with questions about deacons. Uh, is there an official class of people in the New Testament identified as deacons? Are those guys in Acts chapter 6, are they deacons? Uh, can you have folks lead up ministry areas if you also have deacons? And so we'll look at some questions about that. What does it mean for adult children to honor their father and their mother? Uh, another question will be, Is are all sins the same? And then we're going to look at that Gibeonite vow in Joshua chapter 9. And uh, the breaking, uh, or the failure to break that vow, even though these were inhabitants of the land and God said to exterminate them. How do we reconcile that? So a little bit of maybe alleged contradiction or difficult passages along with some other kind of staple matters. So, hope you'll be here for that. And after a somewhat more brief version of the Q&A... Uh, we will have our fourth Sunday night singing. That'll be right on time. This is the fourth Sunday, so look forward to that. Not a theme this month, but we will engage in a special time of singing to God. One other thing with regard to July, we're going to be asking great questions that people ask about God and the Bible. And we're going to go through five of those questions, and we're going to end with a question about the New Testament church on the last Sunday morning of the month. And on that particular service, Hiram and I will be splitting uh, a great text with regard to the church. So that's also our friends and family day. That's a, a church eat church uh, uh, event, or I guess it would be church eat singing event. So we encourage you uh, to be thinking about folks that you can invite to be here with us as we seek to honor what the, the Bible says about the church of the New Testament. That's all we want to be. Is New Testament Christians. I, I think you're familiar with the text and the account that we just read about. In fact, one of our summer series speakers has already spoken about Naaman. But look at how that account begins in 2 Kings chapter 5. As you look and see that Naaman was a captain in the army of the Arameans, he was a great man. He was a man that was highly respected because the Lord by him had granted victory to Aram. And he was a valiant warrior, but he was a leper. And as you think about this man's characteristics and you think about where he was among the Syrians and the Arameans, you come to see more about what was going on around him. The Arameans themselves were aggressive people. They were going out on raids. And as a band of them went out, they brought back a little girl from the land of Israel. And she was enslaved and she became a mistress or a servant to Naaman's wife. But she spoke to her mistress on that occasion and she said, Oh, that my master were with the prophet who was in Samaria because he would heal him of his leprosy. And Naaman went in to the king of Aram. And he spoke to him, he said, Thus and thus says the little girl from the land of Israel. And the king of Aram wrote a letter and it sent it by Naaman his servant to the king of Israel. And he sent him with ten talents of silver and five thousand or six thousand shekels of gold and ten changes of clothes. Those are the word that, words that Jim read to us so well a moment ago in 2 Kings chapter 5, verse 1 through 5. And in connection with that reading, I want to ask you a question that you may not see as connected. Are you 
important. Now maybe in answer to that, you know that you need to have a measure of humility. Maybe you know what the answer ought to be. Maybe you would say in a self-effacing way, no, I'm not important. I'm very unimportant. Maybe we might even say, I'm just a servant of the Lord, and that's fine. But may I suggest to you that as we read in 2 Kings chapter 5, that the answer that you ought to say is yes. Yes, I am very important. Now, we'll qualify that and we'll put it in its proper context because that could be said arrogantly and it could be wrong. But as you examine the characters in the account in 2 Kings chapter 5, who do you think is the most important character in that account? I think we could make a case for Elisha the prophet, couldn't we? He is a man who has picked up the mantle literally of Elijah the prophet and he's doing all of these great wonders. A man who otherwise is an abject and morally destitute man, King Jehoram of Israel, is going to ask about and is going to learn about all the great works that Elisha has done in 2 Kings chapter 8 and verse 4. You could say Elisha is the greatest man in this account. He is going to be the man through whom the cleansing is going to come that we know so well in the latter part of 2 Kings chapter 5. But could you also make a case that the greatest man in this story is Naaman? Look at how the Bible describes him for us. He was a great man. The text comes out and says it. He was highly respected. He was a valiant warrior. God was granting victory to these Gentile people, the Arameans, through his hand as the instrument on the battlefield of the Aramean king. Yes, he is very important. We might not say that it's Jehoram. Of all the people in the story, we would say he's a weakling in every way that you could count that. He is the son of the infamous and wicked Ahab. But you know who I think you certainly would not say is the most important person in this story? That little slave girl. When we look at her, we see her uh, uh, against the backdrop of this story and we think she has everything going against her, doesn't she? In fact, as I look at this, there are at least four things that are going against this girl who was taken in the raid by the Aramean people. For the one thing, she was an Israelite. And it was not a great thing at this particular period of time to be an Israelite, at least from a military standpoint. Because they were being suppressed. The Arameans had the upper hand. And as the result of this, they could come along and they could snatch people and bring them back to do their bidding. And this little girl was one of those. She was an Israelite. But very simply, she is, or at least she became a slave. You know, she was property. She was the result of that Aramean raid. And you'll notice in the third place that she was a little girl. Literally, she was a girl of marriageable age who was not yet married. And then on top of that, she was obscure. Everything we know about her is related to her job, is related to the circumstances that we see here, that she was property, that she was a servant of Naaman's wife. Outside of her words and those facts, we know nothing else about her. What was her name? What, was, what happened to her in the rest of her life? We're going to see what happens to the other characters. Even Benadad, the king of Syria here. He also could be considered a great man. He reigned for 30 years before Haziel comes along and assassinates him in 2 Kings chapter 8. But this little girl, and yet I'm going to tell you, Naaman is dead without her. When you begin to think about her, it can be a reflection on how we think about ourselves. 
Isn't it very easy for us to look at our lives, especially spiritually, and to talk about our limitations? It's easy for us to think about what it is that we cannot do instead of the things that we can do. How easy it is for us to slip in the mode of the Israelite spies in Moses' day that are sent out to look at the land and they come back and they give their estimation based on who they see themselves to be alone and apart from God. Isn't it easy for us to look at our lives and who we are as children of God and to think more in terms of our problems instead of our possibilities? And it's at that time that we can look at an account like this. And we can see who we might otherwise see as a minor character in this account and see how important she was and through that see how we can be important to God today no matter how limited we think that we are. When you look at Ephesians chapter 4 and you think about the church, the church is a body. And a body is composed of so many different parts, just like our physical body. And God uses each and every part of that body to accomplish the overall purpose of the head of that body, Christ, on this earth. So I want you to think in terms of that. I want to see four things from this young girl and how she was and things about her that we can apply to ourselves as God has us in this world to bring somebody closer to Him. First of all, as we look at this girl, we see that she was compassionate. She was compassionate. And you think about what's already happened to her in this story. She was minding her own business when she's snatched up and she's taken to a faraway land to do something, presumably at least to some degree, against her will. And if you think about somebody being put in her place, if you could put yourself in her sandals, wouldn't you have a hard time not feeling bitter? Bitter that your life was disrupted and you were taken off to do somebody else's bidding according to what they have forced you to do. In fact, if you found yourself in that situation, wouldn't it be easy for you to be very glad, at least secretly, that the person who took you captive had a a fatal disease? And yet you don't see that at all with regard to her. Not only does she not demonstrate this kind of a mentality, she is anxious to want to do something in order to help the situation. That she would go up to her master's wife seemingly unsolicitedly and say, Oh, if my master were with the prophetess in Samaria, then he would be healed of his leprosy. When we examine this idea of compassion, it is one of the most basic characteristics of a New Testament Christian. The Apostle Paul would say this in Colossians 3 and verse 12, And finally, uh, beloved of God as those holy and set apart, put on a heart of compassion. That means to feel pity, to have sympathy for. Abraham Lincoln said he felt sorry for the man who could not feel the whip when it's placed on another's back. By contrast, I want you to think about Jesus who was the epitome of compassion. Jesus was an individual who felt for others. In fact, it's one of the dominant features that you'll find in the book of uh, uh, in the book of Matthew, and certainly in the Gospels. As a picture is painted of who Jesus is and his character, we think about his teaching, we think about his miracles, we think about his mighty deeds and his conquering all the various aspects that might stand against him. We see him as the Son of God in the flesh, and yet notice how compassionate he was in a variety of situations. 
In Matthew chapter 9 and verse 36, Jesus surveys a large crowd of people and Matthew tells us that he had felt, he felt compassion for them because they were distressed and they were dispirited. They were scattered like sheep without a shepherd. And then in Matthew 14 and verse 14, Jesus sees another large crowd of people who have various physical problems and the scriptures say that he felt compassion for them. In Matthew 15 and verse 32, there's this other large group of individuals and they don't have food to eat. And Jesus, even as he looks at this, realizes it's a temporary situation that maybe by catch as catch can, they'll find a meal somewhere, somewhere. The disciples say, send them to the city, let them take care of themselves. Jesus' compassion was so profound that he miraculously provides food for them. In Luke chapter 7, in verse 13, Jesus shows compassion when people have lost loved ones. So you see in these variety of situations, Jesus had the capacity to feel compassion. And he demonstrates for us that we need to have our eyes open and our hearts bent toward people who need us to show them the compassion of Christ. As the compassion that's needed, Jesus sees. Jesus does what he can do, and that's exactly what this Israelite girl does. There's so much outside of her hands, but she does what she can. God calls us to do the same. You know, there's folk tales from all over the world, but I guess this is the only Canadian folk tale that I know. It's a, it's a folk tale of, about a small pack of porcupines that are trying to keep each other warm on a very cold night up there where the north winds blow. And so as they are facing the wintry blast, they begin to to come in close together so they can keep warm, but their quills poke one another. And they have to move away. And, And as they move away, the icy blast of the winter winds come and blow even harder. And so they're forced back together. And as they come back together, they prick one another with those needles again. And so all night long, they do this uncomfortable dance. They need each other. But they keep needling each other. I want you to think about the fact that there are people all around you that need you, that need your compassion. What do they get from us? Do we fulfill that need or do we needle them? This little girl takes this opportunity and she shows compassion. How many people are there that need your compassion? And maybe you can show them compassion when they least expect it. What happens when you go in and you show compassion to somebody who you would consider and others would consider an enemy at work or at school? What if you go and in your compassion you help somebody who has hurt you in the past? What would it be like if you show compassion even to a brother or a sister in Christ who has done some disservice to you and has done uh, has hurt you in some way in the past? Wow, what an impact it can have. Apart from everything else that can be said about you, you can be compassionate and through that you're very important. A second thing I want us to notice about this young girl is not only was she compassionate, but she was convicted. When we see the circumstances of Nahum and we see that he has this fatal diagnosis, that he's going to die of leprosy, we see her response. And it's more remarkable than you think that it is on the surface. You'll notice that she goes to her master's wife, Naaman's wife, and goes and says, If my master were in with the prophet who was in Samaria, he would heal him of his leprosy. There's no equivocation on her part. 
She is convinced that if he can just get together, if she can somehow put those two together, that there is no doubt that he is going to be healed of his leprosy. Well, why is that remarkable? It's remarkable, at least to me, because of Luke chapter 4 and verse 27. Jesus is trying to bring down those haughty religious leaders a a notch or two. And in order to do that, he's saying, you're not the only special people on this earth. And in order to kind of illustrate that, one of the illustrations he uses is of Naaman. In Luke chapter 4 and verse 27, he says that there were many lepers who lived in Israel in the days of Elisha the prophet, but he was sent to none of them except to Naaman the Syrian. How many lepers... And Israel lived and died during Elisha's day. I don't know, but it's a communicable disease. I imagine there were quite a few. But how many did Elisha heal during his ministry? So far as we know, only one. Man, what conviction. How do you explain a conviction like that that this young girl could know that Elisha the prophet would heal her master? It's a commodity that is taught about as much as anything in the Bible, but even though it's simple to understand and even to define, it's one of the most difficult principles to play out in our life every day. It's uh, at the forefront of the great faith chapter. Now, faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Hope is a confident expectation for the good or the thriving of the future. And that's exactly what this girl felt. She had a conviction and an expectation that if she could just do what she could to get the parties involved together, that God would work His His power. Do we need that in our world today? I appreciate so much the prayer that was prayed by David. And I think about the times in which we live It can be easy for us to feel like that things are falling apart at the seams and and, and that there's unrest and there's turmoil. And and what what is our place in that? What does God want us to do in those few days and months and years that we have on this earth? What does He expect you and I to do against such a wave of resistance, spiritually speaking? What can God do with a few little Christians to reach the masses of lost humanity in this world? What can God do through the Lehman Avenue Church of Christ to turn the spiritual world upside down in southern Kentucky? What can God do in your life with the lost people that come into contact with you? Your answer says something about the faith that you have and the hope that you have based on your conviction in the Christian life that you're living. What limitations are there on the God that we serve? If we can answer that, like this little girl seems to answer that, we can bring somebody closer to Christ. She was convicting, but she was also convincing. Do you see that in the third place? It's one thing for us to believe something, but it's something else for us to persuade others about that. And just because we're hearing about something doesn't mean that we're on board. In fact, folks get on board with regard to things at different speeds and rates. And some people just don't get on board. You think about King Jehoram. King Jehoram was the spiritual leader. It should have been. He was certainly the political and the national leader. But they should have looked to him like they had looked to to David and to 
the righteous kings even in the divided kingdom. But Jehoram was not that man. You remember the king of Aram sends this letter? He sends it by Naaman and he, as he sends it to him in 2 Kings chapter 5, verse 6 and 7, he says, I'm sending this to you that you may heal my servant uh, Naaman of his leprosy. And when the king read this, he tore his clothes and he says, Am I God to kill and to make alive? That I can cure this man of his leprosy? The little girl had to have been the least persuasive person in her master's household. But somehow she persuades Naaman and she persuades Naaman's wife and through that is able to persuade the powerful king of Aram, Benadad, in order to get this letter to the king of Israel and to get ultimately to Elisha. How do we persuade people? How do we convince people? Of the things that we already know. There are various experts that come along and talk about the power of persuasion. And what does it take to persuade people? And they'll say things like that you've got to be able to enter into their world. People have got to be able to relate to you. You've also got to be able to size up people's needs and their desires. And to be able to address that. You've got to be able to give them compelling evidence. You have got to communicate deliberately and yet clearly. And you have got to, through your ability to reach into their lives, to find common ground before you have to disagree about something. A man named Michael Lee, that was what uh, he said in How to Powerfully Persuade People. It seems like this little girl at least does a couple of those things. She's forced into their world when she's taken captive. And not only that, but notice how she masterfully meets the needs and the desires of Naaman and his leprous condition. When I think about persuading people, there's a great many passages that may come to mind, but one of them that comes to mind is Colossians chapter 4 and verse 5, where the Apostle Paul says, Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the most of the opportunity, and let your speech be always with grace, as though seasoned with salt, that you may know how you ought to answer every man. Do you see how the Holy Spirit, 2,000 years before Michael Lee, already had those tips lined out for us? You think about what is said in that passage in Colossians 4, verse 5 and verse 6. We enter into the other person's world. Wherever you find yourself every day. God wants you to make connections with people. To try to build a bridge with them. We are trying to to meet needs and to make the most of opportunities. Galatians chapter 6 and verse 10. But every relationship that God blesses you to have is a means to a spiritual and an eternal end. It is not just about business. It's not just about school. It's not just about community. It's not just about the social activities of us or our kids. It's to connect them to Christ. We need to enter into their world. We talked about that a few weeks ago in 1 Corinthians chapter 9 and how we become all things to all men. We also, through the gospel, don't we have the ability to meet the needs and the desires of the people in our lives? And not only that, shouldn't we, as we grow in our ability to defend our faith, 1 Peter 3 verse 15, be able to give them compelling Evidence from Scripture, by the way, those sermons are meant to help us to do that. We're going to walk through some of the most basic things we're going to get asked as children of God. And if we can help give them compelling evidence, I believe there are a lot of people who might soften their thinking toward Christ. And certainly, as we watch what comes off of our tongue and how it comes off of our tongue, that can help us to clearly communicate the will of Christ. 
Oh, and I know it's hard. You know, somebody's going to come to you and they find out, oh, you're a member of the Church of Christ, and they may have some preconceived ideas. What we're trying to do is to build a bridge. We need to help them to see the common ground so that we can then discuss with them. Isaiah 1 and verse 18. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they be red as crimson, they shall be as wool. This week, God will very likely place in your path somebody who needs Christ. But maybe they don't need know that they need Him. Maybe they know that they need Him, but they don't know where to turn. Or maybe they need Him, they know where to turn, and there aren't quickly convinced. Maybe your first conversation is not going to be the most successful one, but continue to keep that connection up and bring them closer to Christ. The last thing I want us to notice in this text in 2 Kings chapter 5 about this little girl was that she was a connection to the cure. Elisha is going to be the one that gives the instruction. God is the one who is going to provide the healing, but without this little girl... Naaman does not get his leprosy healed. So often I think we rightly talk about the importance of preaching and teaching the gospel. What does Romans 10:14 say? How shall they hear without a preacher? It's important to be able to properly sit down and teach somebody. And yet how often do we talk about the one who provides the connection to that? That's the role this little girl plays. As far as we know, she doesn't go through some doctrinal diatribe in which she gives some great theological truth. What she does is she says, you go see him and then he'll take care of it for you. Andrew is not one of the apostles that we think about when we think about who caused the New Testament church to spread and grow. My mind goes to Peter. My mind goes to Paul. I even think about some non Apostles in the New Testament whose evangelistic pursuits are more prominent, like Philip the evangelist in Acts chapter 8, or, or Silas, or Barnabas, or any number of people. Luke and Timothy. What about Andrew? We don't know anything apart from Andrew's name and maybe his movements. The only three places in Scripture where he plays a prominent role are all in the Gospel of John. And there's an uncanny thing going on. No, he doesn't teach anybody anything overtly that we see in Scripture. In John chapter 1, verse 40 through 42, he is listening to Jesus. He goes and he finds his brother Simon Peter. He brings him back. He says, we have found the Messiah. Peter goes and listens and follows him. In, in, in John chapter 6, Philip fails the test of faith and they're trying to figure out how to feed this big crowd. And so Andrew maybe quietly goes among the crowd, finds this little boy, and he brings back a little sack lunch to Jesus and he says, how about this? And God through that feeds 5,000 men. In John chapter 12, you have... Uh, these Greeks who have come to Jerusalem to worship, who find one of the other apostles. And you know what that other apostle does? Brings them to Andrew, who takes them to Jesus. You know what they said? Sirs, we would see Jesus. And when people thought, we want to we see Jesus, you know what they thought? They thought, let's find Andrew. Andrew can make the connection. Don't know anything about what his preaching or teaching style was. And let me say this. Not everybody has the ability to sit down and effectively teach a Bible study one-on-one. Your gift may not be preaching. 
It may not be teaching the gospel. You may very well be just like Moses, slow of tongue and slow of speech. Exodus chapter 4 and verse 2. But you know what you can do? You can bring somebody to someone who can teach and preach to them. It's part of God's process. And it does not make you one whit less important in the kingdom of God. Because God needs Andrews. God needs unnamed little Israelite girls. Because without her, Naaman's dead. With her, connecting him to Elisha. We have this account. We talk about it on a Sunday morning in southern Kentucky, 2,800 years later. It's an interesting account. In the New Testament, Jesus uses Naaman as an illustration of God's impartiality. How Jesus uses him in Luke chapter 4 is to say that whoever you are, God wants you to be healed. But how have we used Naaman? How have preachers and teachers used Naaman in a very legitimate way? We have used Naaman as an illustration that we follow God's plan of salvation even if it makes no earthly sense to us. That's the part where Naaman is uh, rebuffs the idea of going and dipping seven times in the Jordan. He wants to go back to his own place, but yet he finally submits, not on the first, second, or sixth time, but on the seventh time of dipping, he comes up cleansed because he very humbly obeys God's plan of salvation. But you know what? Without that unnamed Israelite slave girl, we don't have that illustration. Are you important? Whoever you are. I could say without equivocation, the answer to that is yes. Every single child of God who is here today can be directly responsible for another soul spending eternity with God forever through your efforts. Please leave here not trusting in your greatness, but the great things that God can do through you. But you could be the Naaman before 2 Kings chapter 5, verse 10 and 11. You could be the one who is to this point has resisted God's plan of salvation, maybe because it doesn't make any sense to you or it hasn't. But now, maybe as you begin to, to dwell on that, maybe as you've studied God's word, you come to realize that to get what God offers, that only he can, you've got to do what God says do in order to get that. And you're ready to act on your faith that Jesus is the Son of God, ready to repent of your sins, that change of mind that leads you to want to make Jesus the Lord of your life and not sin, not Satan, not yourself. And maybe you're ready to allow yourself to be lowered in water, to have your sins washed away, cleansed by the power of God, to walk in newness of life. Maybe you're a child of God and you're just burdened down with the problems of this life or maybe sin has begun to reign in your life and it's caused you to find yourself drifting apart from Him. And maybe you need to come back home. This moment of invitation is something that we offer by way of an expedient. Maybe this is a time when somebody realizes publicly you're ready to act on the need and you want to do that publicly. We want to help you. You know, there have been those who have come lately and we've prayed with them. What I love about this congregation is I have not yet seen anybody come forward alone. I love to see others who come and say, we'll, we'll walk with you through this.
We want to encourage you. We'll help you if that's your need. This is your invitation. Won't you come right now as we stand and sing?